Well, I had a great, great week, I have to tell you. I spent Monday morning in different places on the globe. I was, uh, I was in Madagascar and uh, teaching for a couple of hours on Monday morning to a school of worship uh, that's being run by YWAM over there in Madagascar, and lovely little group of students, and I met with them uh, every morning uh, for a couple of hours, uh, uh, Monday through Friday, had a great, uh, great time with them. And then on Monday, uh, right after I got done uh, teaching in, uh, with the YOM group, I was in Pakistan and uh, was preaching a, an evangelistic rally in Pakistan and had a wonderful, wonderful time uh, just sharing the gospel with those folks and uh, bringing that to them. It really is amazing. You know, for all the garbage that technology brings with it, and, and it's, it's true of any innovation, any technological innovation brings garbage with it, brings the dark side with it. The dark side, the, uh, the, the prince of the power of the air, the principalities and powers of darkness, the enemy, will always seek to uh, take any technological advance and try to move unholy things through it. But... Thank God for those advances because so many people are able to connect and be encouraged and be taught and be evangelized and shared with through that technological uh, medium. And I, I have to tell you, I was just, I, I sat down, this is all before lunch on Monday, and I just sat down at lunchtime just marveling that I could talk to a teacher group in Madagascar preach to a group in, in, in Pakistan, and then go about my work day. You know, it was just a, uh, just a lovely thing, and I'm just so grateful that God gives those opportunities to us. The fighter verse today, as we mentioned earlier, comes from the book of James. And he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The opening line of that, submit yourselves therefore to God, and then the third line, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's, that's an Oreo. The middle of that, when it says resist the devil, and he will flee from you, well, how do we do that? How do, when, when I look at you and say resist the devil, and he'll flee from you, well, what does that involve? How do you go about doing that. Well, I'll tell you the key ways that you do it are, number one, you submit yourselves to God. You come under His lordship. You come under His dominion. You come under His rule. You, 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 you actively place yourself there. You say, well, how do I do that? Draw near to Him, and He will draw near to you. How do I draw near to Him? Pray. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Bring yourself to His grace day by day. Bring yourself to His loving presence day by day. He will draw near to you. He will respond to you. He will grace you with His presence, His wisdom, His power, His insights, His strength, His healing, His freedom. Draw near to Him. He will draw near to you to you. That is how we submit ourselves to Him. And as we do that, we are resisting the enemy, and He will flee from us. Well, 
Let me, let me bring up this morning um, what I didn't preach last week, and, I, and I, we need to get to it. And we're, we're talking about this idea of uh, walking in wisdom toward outsiders. I really hesitate to share messages like this because I feel like we can get a little bit lost in the weeds or that we are kind of just you know, uh, hanging our heads and wringing our hands and bemoaning the condition of our world and, and that kind of thing. And I don't, I don't enjoy that. But in order to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, I think it's important that occasionally we just take into account what is the, um, what is the, 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 uh, the theme by which the world is functioning right now. What is the narrative that the world is functioning in right now. So, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, Paul's talking to this young church leader, and he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience, and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Every generation since that was written, this has been true. Every generation throughout the centuries, that has been true. There have always been people with, quote-unquote, itching ears, looking for something that will affirm what they would prefer to believe rather than what God tells us to believe. And it's no different in our day. Let me define a word for you here. That word is schema. A schema defined as this, it's a complex interwoven system of ideas and thoughts often embedded and passed on through stories. There's a story schema that is always true. Anybody in here big fans of Hallmark movies? I love Hallmark movies. I have to. I have to because my wife's going to watch them whether or not I want to see Hallmark movies, especially around Christmas time. I was so, I couldn't stand it when I heard that beginning on Thanksgiving there's going to be seven nights of premieres of Christmas Hallmark movies. Now, now she gets annoyed with me when we're watching Hallmark movies because I keep saying what's going to happen next. And you can't help but know what's going to happen next because the story is always the same. The characters change. The conflict changes, but it always gets resolved, and it's always a happy ending, and it, and it follows this salvation schema or this rescue schema. Let me, uh, here's the structure of salvation schema. We all know it. It's in all our stories, right? There's a setting. In the setting, there's a once upon a time. It might be in a Christmas tree lot in Chicago or it might be in a castle somewhere, but there's a, a setting in which the characters are introduced to us. Usually, a lovely princess, right? 
and uh, some kind of a dashing gentleman. And then there becomes a conflict. For instance, in Snow White, what happens to her? She's poisoned, right? There is a conflict. Her life is threatened, and so she is in trouble. There is a crisis. There is a conflict. Now, through the story, we will eventually get to the climax of the story, which is what? A kiss of life is given. The prince rushes in, kisses her. She comes back to life. And then what do they do? They live what? Happily ever after. It's why you know it's not rooted in reality, right? Because, but, but that's the scheme. That's the story. Now, our salvation story, if you go on, the gospel salvation schema is simply this. And see, this is where all of these stories find their origin. They find their origin in this. The setting, creation, Eden, a time of innocence, Genesis 1 and 2, God creating us. And then the, con- and then the conflict. In the conflict, there is fall and rebellion and corruption enters in to our world in Genesis chapter 3. Now the climax of a very long story then is this moment of great redemption and sacrifice when Jesus Christ takes our sins upon Himself and then He is resurrected from the dead. Talk about a kiss of life in that moment. And then the resolution for our story is still on the way. Still coming. There is coming restoration. There is coming justice. There is coming a return of that wonderful Hebrew word for peace, shalom, which means an entirety of peace at every level of living and being and creation. That's where we're heading. Now, the secular salvation scheme changes from time to time, but it's but its roots are pretty consistent, and we see it very clearly today. The secular salvation schema, the God-out-of-the-picture salvation schema. So if you listen to people today, particularly among uh, older millennials, some young boomers, but uh, quite a bit within our our college age and young adult structures today, what's the setting that they're taught? That there was a time when they were pure, innocent. When they were born, they were pure and innocent and lovely and untampered with. They were perfect when they were brought in to this world. But then there was conflict. And the conflict extends over time. And it looks like trauma. It looks like trauma. Some of that trauma is very real and very sad. The levels of verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse in our world today is overwhelmingly grief-inducing. The level of, of damage that is done in families through divorce, it is heartbreaking to see what has happened to children. But over time, there's what they would call trauma, but not only trauma, but there's restrictions. What you can and can't do, what's right and what's wrong. Parents have uh, pressed upon you 
a sexual ethic that doesn't rise from your own personal sense of being and comfort. They've impressed upon you a gender that is yours and that you must adhere to. They've pressed you into a certain system whereby you have to perform and learn and grow and earn, and then that pressure you into, you must get married, and you must produce children, and you must take your place as productive members of society, and all of this is traumatic for many, many young people today. The climax, where does the salvation enter in when we rediscover our true selves, our authentic selves, our inner child? Where is that inner child that was free and that was happy? Because the end goal is your personal happiness, unfettered unrestricted, uninhibited in any way that you want to pursue it. That is the scheme. And the resolution becomes when we, have, when we, when we enter into that self-actualized happiness. And of course, for the secularist, that's all there is in this world is simply to try to be as happy as you can in these moments because when you're dead, you're dead. No eternal life, no hope of the future. Just this traumatic world, this trauma-inducing world, this heavy-handed, restrictive world that wants to control you and manipulate you and deny you the happiness that is your right as a person. So, Let's talk about each of these things just a little bit today. Let's break it down and give this to you. You doing okay so far? It's one of these messages, I know, but I'm, I'm, so I, I'm a pastor teacher, right? So last week I did pastor, right? No, no, no. This week I'm teaching you something about the world you live in, that we live in, and hopefully giving you something that will, give, that will help you as you talk to people or you understand what they're saying. So... When it comes to uh, origins, origins. So the Christian worldview is this: what that mankind was made in God's image in the Garden of Eden, walking in God's presence, experiencing no shame. There was an inherent goodness, but because there was no sin at that point in time. Uh, the secular worldview: your original design is your true self, your true self, your inner child with happiness before you were despoiled by the world around you. That was your inherent goodness. Now, Revelations 4.11, it's really light here, it's hard to see. Revelations 4.11 reminds us of what? That God is worthy of all praise. Why? Because He created all things and for His glory they were and are created. There is a, a, a scheme of looking at life and looking at the world that says that I was created for my own happiness. I was created for my own self. I was created to be and to explore who I am as a unique individual and to discover what will make me wonderfully happy. The Scriptures teach us that we were created for God and for His glory. 
and His praise. We do not belong to ourselves. We belong in a place of living for the glory of the one who created us. All right, so that's, we're at, that's origin. Let's talk about the fall. What do they, the differences in the fall, the Christian worldview, the introduction of sin into God's creation, choosing self over God. Through, though, though created in God's image, our nature has been distorted by sin. Our bent is away from God. We have a sinful nature, a corrupted nature. We have been spoiled. We have been. We've been spoiled by sin. And that sin corrupts us, and that sin brings death, and that sin brings destruction. That sin brings, brings heartache and conflict and anger and division. That sin brings a whole host of things that are hurtful to us. The secular worldview is that what's happened is we just have had trauma that's damaged our true self. You are inherently good. You're still inherently good. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not a person in need of a Savior. What you need to understand is that, you're, that life has kicked you around. Your family of origin has damaged you. They have put things upon you. They've put restrictions upon you, expectations upon you, and this has all traumatized you. Other people have sought to control you. Cultural traditions and religion has corrupted you. You've been made to feel like you're a bad person and that you are a sinful person and that your happiness has been denied you by others. Romans 1, 18 through 32 spells out the picture clearly that God had revealed Himself, that what can be known about God, His nature, His power, could be seen in what is created. But what did man do? Did man worship his Creator? No, he turned from his Creator and worshiped the creation rather than the Creator, crafted idols for himself, bowed down to things made of stone or wood. Today they're made out of steel and silicone and plastic and, and, uh, and chips. Uh, today our idols look different, but we've, they bowed down to those things and eventually worshiped the thing that was the only thing that they could ultimately worship in their frame of mind was what? Themselves. We worshiped themselves. And as they worshiped themselves, they succumbed to, uh, to every kind of, of, of sin, of, of sexual sin, of immorality. They, they all, when you worship self, when you worship self, the only avenue you have to take is that of pleasing self and whatever brings the most pleasure to self. And so your spirit's not elevated. Eroticism is elevated. Self-love is elevated. All of these things, what God made to be good in marriage, and by the way, we don't say it enough, sex is wonderful. It's meant to be wonderful. It's a gift to our marriages. It strengthens us. It creates intimacy. It creates closeness. It is a healthy, good, wonderful thing. God created it, and He created all those good things that go along and every good feeling that comes with it. He made all of that. But if we turn it into an idol, then we start to drift away from God's purposes for it. And it doesn't lead to happiness. 
It leads to shame. It leads to disease. It leads to heartache. It leads to brokenness and a host of other things. I got, I, I, I got to do that. I can't preach today. Okay, so sin enters the world. What is the Christian worldview? Living contrary to God's design. Anything that separates us from God's presence and His design for holy living, both inward and outward holiness. The secular worldview is this, is that your problem is not your, this thing called sin. Your problem is you have low self-esteem. <clears throat> and you have low self-esteem because of all of this trauma that you've experienced and all these expectations that have been put on you and all of this, heart, this, this heartbreak. And so unhappiness is your lot. Anything that hinders pleasure, anything that hinders pleasure, anything that makes you feel bad, about yourself, anything difficult stands in the way of your happiness, and that is the result of sin in our lives. Sin is to have low self-esteem. Romans 3, uh, 23, and the verses around it, we understand that sin is simply this. It is coming short of the glory of God. If we are made for the glory of God and created for the glory of God, then sin is when we do not love God, when we do not seek Him. He is the one who created us, and therefore He gives purpose. He gives meaning. He gives understanding. He gives value. He gives dignity to us. He gives understanding of what would make us fulfilled and what will make us purposeful in our lives. Sin is when we reject God's design. And when we reject God's design, we are entering into things that will create separation from us with God. The Bible says that we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Remember, don't, don't ever get in discussions with people and reduce sin to certain things. Don't, don't waste your time on that. Don't waste time talking about smoking, drinking, and, and, uh, and pornography, and, and whether or not they're Republican, or they're a Democrat, or they're a socialist, or who they vote for, or what, what their position is on this. Or, none of that matters when it comes to the salvation of their souls. What matters is a clear understanding that we were created by God for His glory, to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, person I'm talking to, if you can tell me that you are loving God and living for His glory with every part of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, then you are, then you are doing what God's asked you to do. But you'd be the only person I've ever found doing it. Because I can tell you, I don't. It is an absurdity for any one of us to say that we love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, 24-7, 365. We do not. It's why we need a Savior. It's why we need a Savior every day. All right, so... 
Let's go on up here. So what is, where does salvation and redemption come in in this idea? So the Christian worldview is that Jesus' life and death and resurrection provides salvation through the forgiveness of our sins, adopting us back into God's family. Salvation is past. It forgives all of our past. It is present. It is, it is keeping us in a place of forgiveness and, and walking with Christ even now, and it is future. We are secured by this grace into the future that God has for us. The secular worldview is this. Well, here's what salvation is. It's rediscovering your true self. Just eat, drink, and or what? Eat, pray, and love your way into your, your true self. Your true identity, centeredness, and, and connectedness, being at peace because I know who I am. No, you don't. No, you don't. You know a caricature. You know a fiction. You know a, a cartoon. You know a, an idea that's been sold to you by educators and philosophers. You've been sold a bill of goods that your happiness has been ruined by everybody else and that you have no responsibility for it and that if you can just get out and get in touch with your inner child and just find yourself and be who you are and everybody else, excuse me, around you be damned. Because see, marriage is one of those things that's forced on you. And so you might discover after being married that this has been a restriction placed upon you. So you need to get free of that. Motherhood, fatherhood, these are restrictions. These are long-term commitments that you were conditioned and spoiled to believe that you had to make. And so if it's important to your happiness, you need to walk away. From that. You need to find you so you can be happy. And then you might deign to dispense a little of your happiness to others. Romans 5, 6 through 11. I want to read this one to you. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since, therefore, we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. And for if we... While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall be saved by His life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. It is that reconciliation that brings you back into line with the One who created you, who made you, who gave you your dignity, who gave you your purpose, who gives you your meaning, and He can restore that to you as you turn back to Him. Let's go on. We've got to wrap up. Holiness and 
wholeness? What does that look like in the worldview? The Christian worldview is we're fleeing from sin, right? The old nature that holds us to the unredeemed life. We're clinging to God's ways and purposes for life. But the secular worldview is we have to flee from externally given identities. This is the gender confusion. This is the trans issue. This is all that we're fleeing from externally given identities. We're running out on our families and our responsibilities, so we have to get rid of these binding commitments. We have to avoid difficult things, any restrictions on our autonomy. But the Christian does not look at the world that way. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says to us, Therefore, laying aside every sin and the weight that so easily besets us, let us run with endurance the race that is before us, looking unto Jesus, the author of our salvation. In Ephesians chapter 4, this is wonderful. Ephesians chapter 4 and uh, verses 20 through 32. But this is not the way you learned Christ, this secular thing. It's not how you learned Christ. Assuming you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. I'm not going to read all this right now, but you can, you can read through verse 32 on your own uh, when you will. But this idea that we are putting off the old, but the old is not that which has been imposed on us by others or externally given identities. or that The old is our old corruption. The old is our sinful selves. We want to put off that which is damaging our lives through self-interest and self-preservation and self-service, and we want to put on the new self, which is restored in relationship with God. Now, let's go forward. Discipleship. What does discipleship look like? Well, the Christian worldview is that as disciples, we are what? We're obedient to Jesus and His vision for your life. Now, the secularist is going to say, well, that's just a restriction. You see? God's just trying to restrict you and to control you. More than that, your church is trying to control you and restrict you. But we understand that when we die to self and we are actively abiding in Christ and aligning in the community of Christ, that we discover the life that we're meant to have. Instead of binding us, it frees us. We are rejoicing in the goodness of what God has done in our lives, and we're becoming more like Jesus. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 speaks again, putting off the old, putting on the new. John 15, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me, and I'll abide in you. As you abide in me, you will find the fruitfulness of your life that you're meant to have. God is not opposed to your happiness He is opposed to your counterfeit happiness. He's not opposed to meaning. He's not opposed to an idea of what you're created to be. He's opposed to any lies 
about what you're created to be. Romans 8, 28 and 29, we know that all things work together for good, right? To those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For, what? For we were predestined to know Him. And that verse just left my head. Dorothy, where are you? Help me out. Romans 8, 28, 29. For we, know that we, for we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He called, He also predestined and to be conformed to what? To the image of His Son. That's the great goal. That's the great purpose in our lives. And so we, we look at life through a lens that helps us to find comfort, peace, meaning, purpose, and in all of it, good and bad, we're becoming more like Christ. The world says no word. It's an achievement culture. Hitting the metrics of our outer self. We have to find a narrative. We have to join in to the narrative. We have to join in to this view of living and this way of living that creates victims, that champions oppression and freedom from it. All kinds of words that are defining our world today, critical race theory, intersectionality, all of these things which are basically rooted in this idea. You are either the oppressor or you're the oppressed. And if you're a parent or a pastor or government leader or a business person or corporate leader or any kind of authority figure, then you are an oppressor. And everybody else is being victimized by you, being oppressed by you. And so we have to throw off this. We have to throw off this. If you don't think that under the move towards socialism in our country is this, you're mistaken. The oppressed want to overcome the oppressors. And there is a growing tide of, of education and view in our world that sees everybody who is not a minority, everyone who is, who is not uh, unsuccessful. Uh, in, in other words, anyone who has control, anyone that has authority, anyone that has abundance, anyone that's doing well, all of those folks, they are inevitably the oppressors. You understand what I'm saying? and everybody else is victims. Now, the problem, of course, is, is that there are a lot of people in authority that do bad stuff. You see? That's part of the problem. Government was made by God, created by God, but there are people that run bad governments. Work was created by God. Business is ordained by God. Businesses can be wonderful, and they can be great sources of security and help and innovation and, and provision for people, but there are people who run their corporations as greedy oppressors. You see what I'm saying? There are parents who can be oppressors, heavy-handed, ungraceful, unloving, unkind, domineering, abusive. It can be oppressive. There are pastors. Oh, God. Oh. It just breaks my heart that, that, that so many have contributed to this narrative 
by abusing their pastoral roles or their positions of authority. So we can't, we can't pretend these folks are totally absurd in their thinking. That would not be fair or right. Especially the youngest ones are growing up in a world that they don't understand, they don't get. And everybody around them in authority is telling them it's their fault because they're denying you your happiness. And so every scheme outside of you and your true happiness with no restriction is an oppressive theme. We gotta, we've got to stop here. I'm sorry. I know we're going long. So future, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, future hope. Go ahead. Our, our Christian worldview is what? Heaven and new creation. God's way wins the day. All things are made right. Death and sin are defeated. And the increase of His government shall never end. Someone say hallelujah. The secular worldview is what? Is that pleasure and happiness in this life, that's the goal. Feeling good about yourself and at peace with who you are, just the way you are. That is your future that has nothing in it past the day of your death. This is the, this is the secular schema of life that is percolating within our world. It's percolating in its own, in some ways it always has, but it's percolating in our day in its own unique ways, its own unique language, and it is gathering force in our world. It is gathering force in our world because as that secular worldview increases, we are finding what? That there is a diminishing in church attendance. There's a diminishing in people who claim to be born again. There's a diminishing of people who believe in God. The statistics on those who choose atheism or agnostic or other are growing in our world because this is the scheme that many are buying into. So this is the world we live in. This is the environment that we have to be those who are prepared. Now, the next two weeks, we're going to talk about sharing the gospel with others. I'm going to give you a tool, another tool to add to your tool belt to do that. But as we share that gospel, what did Paul say in, that, in Colossians? He says, pray for open doors that I may speak clearly, that I may state it clearly. I want to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. I want my speech to be seasoned with salt. I want my words to be full of grace. And I want to communicate the gospel clearly to this world. That's what we'll be working on the next two weeks. All right? Amen. Let's come to the table of our God. On the night that our Lord Jesus Christ was handed over to suffering and death, He took bread. And when He'd given thanks, He said, This is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat this, all of you, in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. Drink this, all of you, in remembrance of me. This story is the story. This schema is the schema. This is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And He offers Himself to us. You do not suffer from a loss of dignity. 
you do not suffer from a loss of value and worth. These say to you that you are worth more than precious gold. You are worth more than anything this world can offer. You are worth more. You are worth so much and so precious to Him. And He loves you so deeply. And He wants you to truly be happy in His presence. The Scripture says at His right hand there is fullness of joy. This is the Jesus that we come to worship every Sunday. The one who tells us the true story. It tells us our true worth and our true value and reminds us week by week, this is the links that I went to to tell you how loved you are. Come, let us feed upon him by faith in our hearts with thanksgiving. Amen.